All right. Good evening. Welcome to Shoreline Church. I'm Joe Collins. Now, I'm going to ask you to do me a favor tonight, and that favor is let's sit a little closer together. We're kind of like really scattered out. So could I give us like just one minute and ask for us to come, maybe move on up a little bit, Juan and Sochi, you guys, come on up. There's there's plenty of seats right here. If you guys want to scoot in just a little bit, make it feel a little more cozy. Not a lot of people here this evening. It's summer. There's a lot of people sick or out of town. And so it's always nice to be a little bit more cozy when we, when we come together. Thank you for doing that, by the way. Really appreciate that. All right. So, uh, as I said, uh, I'm Joe Collins, and uh, welcome to Shoreline Church. And uh, we've been in a series called Jesus Worth Following. And we're going to keep continuing that series right now. Last time when we were together, some of you may not remember this, uh, or you, maybe you weren't here, but last time we were together, we talked about um, humbling ourselves before God's Word. Well, tonight, I want to talk about uh, treating each other better. And hey, we're off to a good start. We got a little closer here. We're a little, we're a little more in proximity to one another. So uh, I appreciate you doing that. So there's this story about a guy named Bob. Now, Bob isn't the brightest, uh, sharpest tool in the shed. Let's just put it that way. And uh, one Friday after work, he got paid. It was payday. And instead of uh, going home, as he should have, Bob uh, cashed his paycheck and decided to go out for the whole weekend and just live it up. He just partied it up. I mean, he went to Vegas, he gambled, he danced, he drank, he caroused, and, and, and it just one, one night, one day moved into the next, into the next, and before you know it, it was Sunday night, he'd spent all the money, and he finally went home. So Bob got home, and it was Sunday evening, and of course, right at the door, his wife met him right at the door, and she was livid. I mean, what was Bob thinking? And for two hours, she just lays into Bob, calling him all kinds of names and telling him how unhappy she is with him. And on and on it went. And finally she said, how would you feel if I didn't show up for a couple of days? Well, Bob isn't the brightest guy. He's not the sharpest tool in the shed. He sort of said, well, that would be fine. He woke up Monday morning and didn't see his wife the entire day. Went to bed, woke up Tuesday morning, still no wife. Went to bed, woke up Wednesday, same thing. It wasn't until Thursday afternoon did the swelling go down in his eyes just enough so that he could see his wife out of the corner of his eye. See, Bob wasn't very bright and he got treated the way he deserved. God wants us to treat each other better. Let's go to God in prayer. Father, thank you so very much for bringing us together. I pray for your spirit to be with us, to infill us, and to empower us tonight. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. We're going to pick up our story in Matthew chapter 12, verse 35. It says, while Jesus was teaching in the temple courts, he asked, why do the teachers of the law say that the Messiah is the son of David? David himself, speaking by the Holy Spirit, declared, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. 
How then can he be his son? The large crowd listened to him with delight. Now, I know we've had camps and different things, and people have been in and out of town, and so you might have missed some of the series that we're doing. That's okay. I'll do a quick recap. Uh, but, you know, if you want to go back and follow up and understand maybe more detail, go back. You can go to uh, shorelinecoc.com, go to our website. The sermons are posted there. You can, you can go back and listen to them and get, get back into the flow. But what's happening here is it's Tuesday. It's Tuesday, the last week of Jesus' life. He's in the temple courts. If you remember from last Sunday, he was there, and the whole day he spent in arguing with different religious leaders. He was arguing with them because two days before on Sunday, when Jesus came to Jerusalem, it was Passover. There were lots of pilgrims in the city there to celebrate Passover. Tens of thousands of people, literally, Jesus arrived and there was so much excitement about his arrival but they, that, they, that they ushered him into the city into a, in, in a big parade and they praised God and called him Messiah and there was this big celebration. Jesus has come to Jerusalem. That's how popular he had gotten. That's how well known he was. And they were looking at him as if he was maybe their savior, their rescuer, their, their Messiah. Well, the next day, Jesus came back to the temple. And again, Passover was part of a, was part of a, a festival that lasted about a week. The Festival of Unleavened Bread actually followed Passover. And so these pilgrims were there for the whole week. It was like Thanksgiving week. Put it that way. And so here comes Jesus again back into the temple. But on Monday, instead of another big party, he clears the temple. He gets so upset at the temple, at the money changers, at the merchants, at the caravanners who are using the temple grounds as their own personal place to make money and interrupting all the worship and the, and the honor of God. He got so upset that he clears all these people out of the temple in, in very strong language, calls curses down on the temple and, con- and condemns the, the situation there at the temple, how, how the leadership had turned it into this marketplace. Then he leaves. Then Tuesday he comes back, and as you can imagine, when he shows back up, all the temple authorities are there waiting for him, and they're mad at what he had done on Monday. So they get into these all these arguments. We talked about that yesterday. There was about four different arguments. <clears throat> and every one of the arguments, Jesus just slams them down. I mean, it's, it's like WWE in debate form. There he is in the temple courts. There's hundreds, maybe ten, maybe thousands of people watching. And these religious leaders with all their knowledge and expertise are there and they're challenging Jesus and they're, they're, they're making accusation and they're trying to discredit him. And Jesus just takes them on one after the other, slams them all down. They all leave with their tail between their legs. And sometime in the afternoon on Tuesday, they quit. No one started arguing with, no one argued with him anymore. They were done. And so here we are. Jesus isn't done with them, though. And what happens now is Jesus, at the end of the last argument, there's an audience. And Jesus says, well, I got a few things that I want to say now. And so he begins speaking to the crowd, and he asks a question about the theology of many of the religious leaders in Jesus' day. And the theology had to do with someone called the son of David. That's what he said. Why do the teachers of the Lord, of the law, say that the Messiah is the son of David? So Jesus asked this question. To give you a little context, that phrase, son of David, was 
was a, a, a reference to the Messiah. In Jesus' time, the teachers of the law, the religious establishment commonly taught that God would raise up a savior, a rescuer of the people. This was not unusual for them to think because throughout their history, going back thousands of years in the Jewish history, there were different times where God raised up a man to come and rescue the people from whatever trouble they had gotten in. King David was the greatest of those rescuers. He rose up about a thousand years before this time, turned Israel into an army and conquered all of Palestine and created the nation of Israel. And it lasted for a few hundred years and it was glorious. But eventually it crumbled and it fell apart. And then prophets began to say, well, one day there'll be another savior. And interestingly enough, throughout that time, there were saviors that popped up. I think of a guy named Gideon. You may never have heard of him, but he rose up and for a time helped cleanse, helped uh, restore the kingdom to its rightful status or, or there were different, um, uh, I'm blanking on the word right now. There were different uh, like restoration moments where different people got up and said, hey, we're going we're gonna to revive, and they would revive, and it would be great for a time, and then it would fall apart. As a matter of fact, about 100 years before Jesus, there was a guy named Judas Maccabeus who rose up against oppressors. They were Greek oppressors and got a little band of, of other priests and Israelite men and took on the Greeks and won and, and got independence for Israel for a short time. And so here we are about a hundred years later, and this is their thinking that, that God's going to raise up a savior, a warrior, a man who will lead us in battle and will restore our fortunes. And Jesus is challenging that theology. He has a problem with that theology. He, he doesn't see that theology in the scriptures. And so in front of all the people, he takes on the theology of the day. Why do you call this Messiah the son of David? Let me quote to you something David himself said. And Jesus quotes Psalm 110. Now, this is not going to be light today. We're going to dig into the scriptures. We're going to go back and we're going to look at some passages because we want to get all the context before we come to a conclusion. So let's go to Psalm 110, the actual quote or the actual passage of the Bible that Jesus is actually quoting to the teachers of the law or really to the crowds about the teachers of the law. Psalm 110, it says, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion, saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your troops will be willing on your day of battle, arrayed in holy splendor. Your young men will come to you like dew from the morning's womb. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will crush kings on that day of his wrath. He will judge the nations, heaping up the dead and crushing the rulers of the whole earth. He will drink from a brook along the way and so will lift his head high. So this is the passage that Jesus quotes. And he says, why, where did this theology come from? Where did you get the idea that the Savior was going to be another David, another human warrior? a warrior king who would raise an army and defeat everyone. Now you might say, well, but that's what's happened before. That's, 
That's what's happened. And Jesus simply says, yeah, but what does David say? Listen to what David thought. The very guy that you're, you're trying to model the Savior after, what did he think about this Savior, this, this one day where this great Savior would come? And the first thing David said about him is that he would sit at the right hand of the Lord. Well, that's not a place any human can occupy. If we were to grab Edom, and many of you know Edom, he's wonderful. I think Edom's, Edom, you're wonderful. But if we were to grab Adon, as wonderful as Edom is, and we were to put him at the seat at the right hand of God, he would vaporize in a second. There'd be nothing left of Edom. Because no human can occupy that seat. And so Jesus is very clearly using David to point out that this Savior that they are so desperately wanting is not the Savior that they think, is not who they think he should be. He's going to be something totally different. In fact, something much greater. He's not going to be human. He's going to be divine. That's David's own words. The teachers of the law, the temple authorities, they were getting it wrong. They, they were wrong. Jesus isn't done, though. He calls him, quoting David, a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. You ever see the movie Inception? I love that movie. You know, it's like a dream and a dream and a dream. Okay, well, we're going to do that. We're going to go scripture into a scripture into a scripture. All right? So now this asks, this begs the question, who in the world is Mekilzadek? I love uh, Jackie's family. They're awesome. And I love the rock and roll gear that you guys wear. It reminds me of my youth. And Mekilzadek, doesn't it sound like a rock, like a, like a heavy metal band? Like, Mekilzadek, you know? I love Mekilzadek's name. But who in the heck is Mekilzadek? Hey, that rhymed. <laughs> so who is this guy? Well, let's go deeper. We're going to go down a level. Ready? All the way back to Genesis chapter 14. Let me get it up there. There we go. Got it on the screen there. After Abram returned from defeating Kurtalammer, another great rocker name, and the kings allied with him, the king of Sodom, not a great rocker name, came out to meet him in the valley of Shavah. That is the king's valley. Then Melchizedek, yeah, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of God most high. And he blessed Abram, saying, blessed be Abram by God most high, creator of heaven and earth. And praise be to God most high, who delivered your enemies into your hand. Then Abram gave him a tenth of everything. Now, this is pretty much everything we know about Melchizedek. We know he was a king of Sodom and he was a priest of God most high. But we can also kind of learn from this passage that he was somehow revered or greater than Abraham because Abraham tithed. He gave him a tenth. There was some sort of honor being given here. The other thing in this passage that we, that we know is what we don't know. We don't know where Melchizedek came from. It doesn't, there's no origin story. Some of you guys are into comic books and these movies. I'm not into them. My kids are into them. And apparently origin stories are really important when it comes to comic books, right? There's a whole like backstory for every character. Well, Melchizedek's like the most mysterious 
guy of all because he's got no story. There's no beginning, there's no end. And so in Jewish lore, and in, and in, in the Jewish mindset, and even in later Christian tradition, Melchizedek is viewed as not human because he has no beginning or end. He's, a view, he's viewed as divine, as eternal. That's, that's kind of how, how we understand him, that, that maybe he was a real guy, but the, but the use of his story, the way they understood the use of him in the, in the story, was that he's, he's something more than just another priest and king. There's something divine about him because there's no beginning or end. Again, it's metaphorical. He may have been a real guy, I don't know. But the indication is, in later Jewish tradition and in Christian thought, was that he was viewed as divine, as a type of God, like an example of type meaning example of God. And Melchizedek was not a warrior, but he was a priest. So the, the Jewish leaders of Jesus' day understood the Messiah, the son of David, to be a man who would be a warrior. And that's what they wanted. They wanted a king who would raise up an army and kill the Romans. But Jesus does a quick little Bible study with them to help them understand that that is bad theology. That is not who the Messiah was going to be. Instead, the Messiah was not going to be human, and he was not going to be necessarily a warrior. He was going to be a priest, a completely different image than they had. It's one of the reasons why the religious leaders had such a hard time with Jesus, because he acted like the Messiah. There was a lot of things about him that was impressive. He could walk on water. He could raise people from the dead. He could heal, mirac I mean, he could feed miraculously 20,000, 30,000 people at a time. That's pretty impressive resume. He could heal people. He knew the Bible better than anyone. And so there was a lot that to like about Jesus, but he wasn't asking for revolution. He wasn't conscripting soldiers for his army. He wasn't sharpening weapons and carrying a sword and, and uh, raising a military to defeat the Romans, and they had a hard time with that because that's what they wanted. That was their view of the Messiah. It's one of the reasons why they rejected him, because he didn't fit the mold that they wanted. You know, it's interesting, isn't it, that God has, a, has an idea, and then we have our ideas, and, and usually our ideas are not right, right? I mean, we, it, it's our ideas aren't the right ones. We have to make them work to fit, but these, the religious leaders and, the, and the, the thinking of the day, they just couldn't do it. They couldn't get themselves off of what they wanted. And so when they read the scriptures, they couldn't see what God wanted. That's a, that's a tragic place to be. Calling yourself a believer, but not actually performing like a believer should perform. Not actually living, not actually believing, not actually thinking like a believer should believe. That's tragic. And unfortunately, that is the state of Israel in Jesus' day. That is where they got to. They were, there was a huge disconnect between their theology and the theology of God's word. It says here in, in the passage that the crowds loved it. 
They loved it, man. There was thousands of people sitting there, and Jesus goes off, right? And they're like, this is awesome. Little Q&A. Why do you think the crowds loved it? Why did they love this teaching? Why did they love seeing Jesus in, this, in these moments? Yes. Yeah, he was different than the religious leaders. He was compassionate compared to them. That's one reason why people cheered him on. Anyone else? Yeah. He wasn't afraid to confront them. Hey, this, this was not a safe thing to do. A lot of people tried to confront them and didn't end up so well. We don't have a lot of records of that because they don't exist anymore. Those people were gotten rid of in a hurry. Jesus, man, he was popular at this point. Thousands of people came to hear him. They could do nothing to him at this point. So he could say what people wanted to say. He could say what these people needed to hear. Everybody else knew they needed to hear it. But he could do it. He could get away with it. Let's go verse... Why do I keep going back to the beginning? Sorry. Oh, sorry. Okay, here we go. Verse 38. We'll keep the story going. As Jesus, as he taught, Jesus said, watch out for the teachers. Oh, what am I doing? I'm back at the beginning. Verse 41, right? Is that where we are? Verse 38. Am I in the right place and I'm confused? Sorry, I'm trying to do two things at once here. Oh, you no, know, we're, we're right. Okay, sorry, I misread that. As he taught, Jesus said, watch out for the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for show make lengthy prayers. These men will be punished most severely. So what was it about the crowds? Why did the crowds love Jesus' teaching? Well, because he was, he was confronting things that they saw as wrong, and that was exciting them. They were like, yeah, go for it, Jesus. Tell it like it is. Because these religious leaders were on display. I mean, everybody saw them, everybody knew what was going on, and all the good, bad, and ugly could come out. I want to make one important point here. Not every religious leader was bad in Jesus' day, and not every religious leader is bad today. Hopefully, I try to stay in the good category, right? Gio and I, we try to, we try to stay on the good side, you know. We all have our, our flaws. But not everybody was bad. But unfortunately, in Israel's, at this time in Israel, many, especially the most influential, they were pretty bad. Their theology was pretty bad. And Jesus just got done slamming down their theology. But not only the theology was bad, but their habits, their practice, how they behaved was bad. And here Jesus just gives us a glimpse, just a little snapshot of the way these guys were, were behaving. He points out that they loved to be noticed. They liked to wear big robes, flowing robes, right? They wanted to be noticed. They wanted to stand out. They loved that. They loved the attention. What else was it? What else does it say that they, that he pointed out? Oh, 
to be, they loved to be greeted with great respect. They wanted to be honored and revered. They, there was a whole protocol when you ran into a, 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 a teacher of the law, a rabbi, you called him rabbi or father or so on, you, or master. There was this whole element of respect that they loved. What else? They loved to have all the best seats. They, you know, they, they didn't have handicap parking back then. They had, you know, master parking back then. They had the, the rabbi parking back then, right? They, they wanted to have the best seat of the house. And when they came to a party, it was just custom. You had to give them the, the seat of honor. And there was something about that. I'm not saying it's wrong to encourage a minister or your minister or Gio and I. It's okay. Buy us a cup of coffee from time to time. But you know, if, if Gio and I start to really like that and expect that and actually start to demand that, then, then talk to us about that because then we're getting over the line there, right? We're going too far. But that was the state of affairs. The religious establishment had just gotten so full of itself. But that's not even the bad part. It says that they devoured widows' houses. And they made a show of their prayers. That word for devoured, ketesteo, Greek, it means to completely consume, to leave penniless. What the religious establishment was doing was they were fleecing believers. They were, they were draining them dry. They were funded by the congregation. The teachers of the law, many people believe, weren't actually a category of priests, and so they had to get their own funding, and oftentimes they would attach themselves to a wealthy widow. And then they would just drain her dry. That is the state of Israel. That is the spiritual condition of the people, at, in, of, the, of the church, of the temple, of its leaders in the time of Jesus. These were the same people who throughout Jesus' ministry were constantly on his heels, constantly nipping at him, constantly trying to tear him down, constantly trying to find fault, constantly trying to challenge him. And just a couple, just earlier that day, we're all over him, trying to, to discredit him, trying to get him, uh, uh, you know, to remove him, trying to change people's opinion of him. These same people who accused Jesus of heresy, of duplicity, of ignorance, were doing those things and more. And then Jesus says, these men will be punished. <laughs> you can see why the crowds were like, yeah. I mean, maybe you had a mom, you lost your dad and your mom got, got caught up in one of these guys' teachings and his school and he just drained her dry and you just saw it and there was nothing you could do. Your mom was a, just got caught up into it, was believing, she gave everything and here she is destitute and that guy's moved on to someone else and now you're trying to care for her. You could see how angry people must have been, how hurt people must have been, how ugly they were. These were the ministers. These were the church leaders. 
temple authorities, the people you go to for counsel and advice and spiritual instruction, and this is how they conducted themselves. That phrase, they will be punished, it reminds me of something. We're going to go back in time again. We're going to go another dream level down. Exodus chapter 22. Listen to this passage. Do not take advantage of the widow or the fatherless. If you do, they will cry out to me. I will certainly hear their cry. My anger will be aroused and I will kill you with the sword. Your wives will become widows and your children fatherless. How did Jesus, how did God feel about the state of the religious leaders in Israel? I will kill you with the sword, was the phrase. That's, that, that's not uh, putting it lightly. That's direct. That's blunt. That's hardcore. That's truth. That's, that's as strong language as anybody could imagine. And that's what Jesus said about these people, about the state of affairs going on in Israel. These people were treating people badly. And, and what happens when leadership gets this bad? What happens when leadership is, is devouring others? What happens to the people? What happens to the spiritual state of the community? It imitates. Follows the lead. There's the haves, the haves nots, and it just gets worse and worse and worse. And you can get, begin to get an idea of why Jesus was so intense in his rebuke. People were hurting. Real people were being injured. Real families were being devastated. Real lives. And the people that were supposed to care were the aggressors. You know, few people could take on the religious leaders like Jesus. And that's why the crowds were behind him going, yeah, you go. I have a cool story. I, I got, it just came into my mind, but I'll share it. My grandmother used to tell me this story. When she was a little girl, this is way back, early 1900s. And uh, she was going to school, and there was a bully at her school. It was a, a boy. And I think she was probably in grade school. And... Uh, the bully told her, you know, that he was going to beat her up the next day at school or whatever. And my grandmother's father was a tough old Italian guy. And he told her that you always stand your ground. You never back down. So she went to school the next day, scared out of her wits because she knew the bully was coming for her. And she was like, I can't run. My dad's going to be mad at me. So she tells the story of standing her ground and the bully was coming at her. And she just stood there, more afraid of her dad than she was the bully, at least. <laughs> And about halfway, before the bully got all the way to her, he finally got this fear of, look of fear on his face, turned around and ran away. And then standing behind her was her dad. <laughs> it's kind of like that. Here's Jesus, like, I'm going to take these guys on. You can see the crowd, like, yeah, you go, Jesus. I mean, the people loved it. Because it was time for a change. It was time for this to end. This kind of stuff just couldn't go on any longer. It was, it was destroying the spirit of everyone. Brothers and sisters in Shoreline Church, we have got to do better with each other. 
We've got to be there for each other. We've got to take care of each other. We can't have people say, man, it's so hard to get plugged in. It's so hard to feel connected. We got to do a better job. It's important. God cares about how we take care of each other. He cares about how we treat each other. Verse 41. Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts, but a poor widow came and put two very small copper coins in, worth only a few cents. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in to the treasury all more than all the others. They gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all she had to live on. It's not a coincidence that after this teaching about fleecing other people, about using other people, about taking advantage of others. It's not a coincidence that Jesus, while he's there in the temple courts, turned everybody's attention to the court of women. Inside the the temple complex, there was a, a big courtyard, and inside there were smaller courtyards. And in one of the smaller courtyards was called the court of women. And inside there was where people gave their offerings. And so Jesus turned the crowd and he pointed out a old woman who caught his eye, who was giving her offering. And Jesus knew she was only giving, she was giving nothing. All she, but it was all she had, so it was everything. Maybe she was a widow who had been fleeced, and that was the end of it. I don't know. But it's not a coincidence that Jesus sees this and turns everybody's attention to it and points it out. I got to confess here. I have taught this passage countless times. Gio has as well. Every church I've been to, every minister, every offering talk, you've heard it a hundred times. We tell the story of the old widow and we talk about sacrificial giving and what a great example she is. And certainly she is. But that's not what the passage is about. And I got to confess, we got to do better at knowing our Bibles and understanding the context of every passage we teach. This passage is not about sacrificial giving. The woman is a case case in point. She's an example. She's an example of a real person who is losing everything. Everything while others are benefiting, while others are taking advantage, while others are gaining, she's losing. She's a face on the teaching of Jesus. She represents a story. You hear politicians, they tell some story. uh, They have a policy and they talk about educating the poor and then they tell a story about a poor person who got educated. It's very similar dynamic. Jesus is looking around going, look, here's case in point. Exhibit A, example number one of what I'm talking about. This is not how we should treat people. We like to teach it as, oh, what a great example. Be like her, really. Jesus is saying, this isn't how we should be. This isn't what it should look like. We shouldn't be draining people dry. 
taking every last penny they have? She's the reason why Jesus called for the end of the temple system. She's the reason, along with countless others, why he showed up on Monday and cleared the temple out and said, this thing is over. This house is done. This story has ended here. A new story is going to start, but this story is done because of her. She's the nail in the coffin. She's the exclamation point at the end of the sentence. This is not going to continue. This is not going to go on. It's the end. Shortly after this, Jesus turns and leaves. And he doesn't talk to the leaders anymore. He's done. This was the end of his attempt to try to minister and to try to mission love and to try to reach out to these people. He did everything he could and he's now done. He leaves. No more. There's no more conversation after this from Jesus to them. There's no more debating. There's no more challenging. Nothing. He just leaves. When the state of a community, the state of a country, a community, a church, of a people, when the state gets to this point where they will literally devour each other, There's no amount of repentance that's going to fix that. It just has to be restarted. Time to just erase the chalkboard and start over. And that's what Jesus is doing. So here's the point. We have a solemn responsibility to treat each other better. Not just each other, but others better. Israel failed at mission love. They had a couple thousand year run at it and they failed in the end. Let's not let that be our story. Where do we start? Where can we start? I mean, there's lots of starting points. You probably have 10 in your head right now. Same over here. Maybe, maybe nine over here, ten over here. They're, they're, the, they're intellectual. But you probably have your own ideas, but I'm going to offer a starting point for us. Here's the starting point. I want to challenge every one of us to make a list of eight to 15 people. Names on a page. Make a list. Eight to 15. I'm making that number up. If you want less or more, I don't care. That's just kind of a good average for most people. These are people you believe that God has purposely put in your life, supernaturally supernaturally and strategically placed in your life. They're there on purpose. Write their name down. And then begin praying for them every day. I have a uh, neighbor I grew up with. You guys may not know this about me, but I live in the house I grew up in. I bought it. And so I live on the same street. I was born and raised in that house. And uh, there's one other neighbor. We live on a cul-de-sac and across the way from us, that's an original owner. I'm not tech. My dad was an original owner, but I own the house now. And they're still the only family left. They're, they're in their 90s. But the, I grew up with their kids. 
and uh, one of them just went through a divorce or is going through a divorce and he's staying at home. And it just feels on purpose that my friend is back in the house we grew up in, his house and my house, that just feels on purpose. And as soon as I saw him and realized, oh, he's staying at home right now as he's going through this difficult time, I went, oh, he goes on my list. There's got to be a reason. That can't be a coincidence. So I put his name down. And I'm praying for him every day. Second thing. Third thing, sorry. Make the list, pray. Number three, invest. Invest in them. It's not that we want something. I don't want something from my friend Danny. I want something for my friend Danny. Invest. You do the same. You get those names down and you go, what can I do for this person this week? What can I do that would be great and encouraging and helpful to them? How can I do something for them? Not to take. I don't want this for me. This isn't for my glory. I'm not doing this so that I can get a pat on the back and have a parade and everybody think I'm awesome. That's not why I'm doing this. I'm doing this because they need Jesus in their life. How can I invest in them? And then invest in them. I texted Danny this morning. Hey, there's a little restaurant like a block away from where we live. I'm like, hey, I'm going to be there at 6.30. Would love it if you could meet me there. I'll buy you a drink. Invest. I don't know what that looks like. It's different for everybody. Maybe it's help them move a couch, you know, whatever. Maybe it's taking their trash cans, as Gio has shared before. But go do something for them. And then invite them to church. Invite them to family group, wherever you can connect them, wherever they can come and get connected in some way. That's it. That's a starting point. You may have other starting points on how you're going to treat people better, but here's one I'd like all of us to commit to. Identify, pray, invest, invite. And let's just that be our normal routine, our normal practice. And when they start showing up at family group, they start showing up at church and they start getting interested in wanting to know more and they get into a Bible study maybe and then they get baptized, what we'll do is we'll pick you up on a chair and we'll parade you around the place and praise you. We'll put a big long flowing robe on you and make you look awesome, right? No, we're not going to do that. We're going to go find the next person. And we're going to teach that person to find the next person because that's what Jesus did. He didn't do it the other way. He didn't do it the look at me, I'm awesome way. He took care of them. He treated people better. If we don't do this, if we don't succeed at mission love, we're no different than those religious leaders in Jesus' day or Bob who took all his money and spent it and then came home and got punched in the eye by his wife. I don't want to get punched in the eye by Jesus. So let's not, that be our, let's not let that be our story. Amen? We're going to close out now in a word of prayer. Stand on up. We'll come together and put our arms around each other. I'll close us in a word of prayer and you'll be dismissed.